0: Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sync Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit Christchurchmanchester.com Who deserves to go to heaven when they die? You know, I think this is a question that a lot of people have debated at some point in their life, no matter their opinions. On the afterlife. So picture the scene. It's a Sunday afternoon. It's a generic English village pub. People are sat around a table, pint in hand. Someone brings up the question of who should get into heaven and why. And so I think the first thing they do is they set the upper and lower limits. So, yeah, Hitler, nah, definitely not. No. Mother Teresa, yeah, yeah, go on, definitely yes. And then they start to fill it out with other famous people in between. And it becomes a comparison game. So, Nelson Mandela, yeah, yeah, let's go yes. And Kim Jong il, no. Martin Luther King, yeah. Stalin, no. And then I think this can go even further. It can kind of get into non-humans as well. So dogs, yeah, we love dogs. Let's put dogs there. Spiders, uh, no. Um, (laughs) And so then one of the weirder entries, I think, happened in 2016 with the death of this individual here. Does anyone know? when it appears. Do you have the next one? Maybe. Ah, there we go. Does anyone know who this is? It is Harambe, great, yeah. So this is a Harambe, a gorilla who was shot and killed at the Cincinnati Zoo after a child fell into the enclosure. And so for a couple of days, there was debate as to whether it was the gorilla's fault for endangering the child or the parents for letting their child get into a position to fall into the enclosure. And so those on Harambe's side quickly started making many memes about the innocent Harambe being ushered straight into heaven after being taken too soon. there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you can still, to this day, buy a collectible action figure of an angelic Harambe sitting in heavenly clouds, you know, if you want to commemorate the loss of such a great figure taken before his time. There he is. There we are. And so The Good Place, which is a TV series from 2016, explored the question of who goes to the good place, which is heaven, or the bad place, which is hell. And I think that gives an interesting insight into how our culture views this question. And so I'm not going to say much about the show, because despite its really terrible theology, I think it's actually quite a good show, which is best seen unspoiled. Um, But I think it captures the common view in today's culture that people throughout their life earn points for good things and lose points for bad things. And as long as you come out in the green, you're in. And so how do we know if we're in the green? Well, we do it by looking... At other people, you know, it's like I may not be perfect, but I didn't have an affair like that guy over there, or I didn't murder anyone like them. And you know, I gave to children in need that one time, you know. I could be better, but I'm definitely better than them. And so our passage today looks at the question of who is righteous before God. And so if you like me have grown up in church, you'll probably have heard this parable countless times before. And you might be thinking, Yeah, yeah, I've heard this one before, you know, this is the time to get a bit shut eye while the kids are out and occupied. So I'm not promising anything new or any kind of deep insights into this parable. But what I'm going to encourage us to do today is as we read this well-known passage, I think we should ask God to bring something new out of the familiar this morning. Um, So please, let's turn to Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. So if you've got your Bibles, let's open them up. If not, it should be on the screen behind me. There it is. This is Luke 18, 9 to 14. So to some people who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So let us pray together before we dive into God's word this morning. So Father, you say in Isaiah that when your word goes out, it will not return empty, but will accomplish what you desire. And so I pray that you would speak to us now as we examine a somewhat familiar passage together, and that your spirit would prompt us and challenge us as we seek to be more like Christ. So, Amen. And so our passage opens with a description of Jesus' audience. So, verse 9 To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And so, Jesus is telling us this parable because he is surrounded by people who are confident that they were righteous, who thought they had a right standing before God, who looked down on everyone else. And these people believed they had a right standing before God based on who they were and their actions. They were self righteous. And we're treating others differently due to this. And so this parable, it's centered on a contrast between two men at opposite ends of a social and religious scale. We've got a Pharisee and a tax collector. And to a first century audience, these two characters would immediately bring a whole host of ideas, feelings, stereotypes to mind that we can miss as 21st century folks. And if you're like me, you probably don't run into that many Pharisees or tax collectors in everyday life. So I think we can miss the context of who these characters are. And so to give us kind of an idea, we might have a similar response if someone said, ah, have you met this CEO of an oil company? So what immediately would come to mind if I said CEO of an oil company? I don't know if you, for me, it's probably rich, fancy clothes, probably cares more about the money than the environment, you know, (laughs) potentially happy to exploit poor people in other poor and poor countries. So just how we can kind of get that potentially stereotypical grasp of someone's life, morality, and ethics based on the job description alone So too do the first century Jews in the audience with these two characters. So they know the reputation of tax collectors and Pharisees. They can immediately picture that specific lifestyle and way of living of these men from just the job description. And so let us dive into each of these characters and their prayers, and let's see what we can learn from them. So firstly, let's look at the Pharisee. So verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So I think one issue we can have when we talk about Pharisees is how they're portrayed in Christian circles. And so I think if this was a pantomime and the Pharisee walked on stage, what are we going to do? Boo. Yeah, exactly. We're going to boo. For those of us who are familiar with the New Testament, know that the Pharisees generally stand in opposition to Jesus. And so they're not generally portrayed favorably. Um, But this is not how your first century Jewish audience is going to have seen them. So Pharisees, they're the religious leaders. They're powerful, wealthy, deeply respected by the community. And these are the people who are the ultimate Bible nerds of the time. They're striving after God. And so the Pharisees, they arose after the exile of Israel in around kind of the 500s BC. So imagine you're a Jew. You've seen your homeland destroyed, your people expelled from the land, and you finally make it back all these years, later. You know, you're steeped in the Torah, and so you know the promises from God about how he will bless his people when they're obedient to him, but also how he will punish his people when they're disobedient, how he will drive them from the promised land. And so you've seen this come to fruition due to the wickedness and disobedience of the people first in the exile, and then in the time since returning, you've seen the conquest of Alexander the Great, the Ptolemies, Antiochus Epiphanes, and now the Roman Empire. So how can we get the nation to be free and to follow God's law again? Well, the solution is obvious because you know your Torah. God will bless his people when they're obedient to his laws. And so it's your duty as the religious leader to make sure everyone is obeying those laws. And just to be extra sure that everyone is pleasing God so that destruction of the past doesn't happen again, we're just going to add in just a couple of extra additional rules and laws just to make sure we're extra sure. And when we do this, God must surely bless us. The shackles of the oppressors can be thrown off and we're going to be a free nation again. And so the Pharisees, that are desperate to see the restoration of their nation, and they long to please God and see his people become the chosen people again. And this desire to serve God drives them to follow all of the law, plus those bonus ones, just to make sure they're extra, sure, and be on the right path. And we can see this in the Pharisee's prayer. You know, he's thankful he's not doing things like those who are jeopardizing the nation, like the robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. He's fasting more than the law prescribes, and he's tithing everything beyond what he needs to do. And so there's a Pharisee at one end of the social and religious scale. This guy appears to be the best. He is the religious megastar. And so in our day, I think he'd be the person at church every Sunday He gives away a lot of his money, organizes the outreach event, loves his wife, shepherds his two-and-a-half kids well, volunteers at the food bank, runs the prayer meeting, leads worship, is on every rotor. yes, that is all the kids' work rotors, and he even has that intellectual millennial Christian beard. Um, So he he desires to please God in how he thinks and acts and lives and is respected by the community. He seems like the ideal godly man. And so the first century Jews would also immediately know what to think about the second character, the tax collector, based purely on their job. And so the tax collector is at the opposite end of our social and religious scale to the Pharisee. They're despised, looked down upon, shunned by society. We can see this in Matthew 8. So Jesus attends a party run by Matthew, a tax collector, and at the party are, verse 8 tells you, many tax collectors and sinners. So who can the tax collector get to come to his party, but only other members of the despised class. So other tax collectors and those who seemingly don't care about the standing, um, or their standing with God, like a good Jewish member of society would, the other sinners. So I don't think most people actively enjoy paying tax. It's not like we get a letter from HMRC and like, ooh, HMRC, woo, filled with delight. Um, surely tax collectors, they can't be that bad, can they? I mean, I know some people have worked for HMRC, and I wouldn't personally put them in the scum of the earth category. Um, so why are they so despised by the first century Jewish audience? Um, well, at the time of the Gospels, the land of Israel was ruled by the Roman Empire. So after the Jews returned to the promised land after the exile, they, ruled, they were ruled by various different empires. They had a brief stint of independence after the Maccabean Revolt, but the Romans are the latest conquerors. And so these Jewish people, they longed for the return to independence, the restoration of the Davidic line of kings. Um, Groups like the Zealots were looking to throw off the shackles of the empire. And as part of the Roman empire, the people of Judea were taxed. And this was done by tax collectors, citizens of Judea who worked with the empire to collect the taxes from their fellow countrymen. And the way they made the money was collecting the taxes and just charging that a little bit extra, and then they get to keep the difference. And this made some of them very wealthy. You know, a prominent example comes in the next chapter, Luke 19, where we get to meet Zacchaeus. And so the tax collectors were getting wealthy by colluding with the occupying forces and then exploiting their fellow citizens. And so a common comparison used for the tax collectors of the time were the mayors of occupied towns in Nazi-controlled France who worked with the occupying Nazis to get rich at the expense of their fellow citizens. And so we see this despised man slink into the back, hide in a corner, and verse 13, he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so which of our characters goes home righteous before God? Well, to the first century audience, it's really obvious, right? It's going to be the Pharisee, yeah? The guy who goes above and beyond to follow God, not that traitorous low-life tax collector. It's the Pharisee, right? And yet, in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you this, this, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. And so how can that be? How can the great Pharisee possibly be rejected by that scum of the earth tax collector be the one who is declared righteous? And so I think most people would agree that the Pharisee is doing good stuff. He's not robbing, that's a good thing. Not doing evil, good thing. Not committing adultery, good thing. Fasting, being generous, good things. And it'd be amazing if everyone in church was as dedicated and scripture-loving as the Pharisee. But we see the answer to this conundrum in verse 14. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so the Pharisee's problem is not his actions, but the condition of his heart. And so let's look at that prayer again in verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, "'God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And so the Pharisee's prayer starts off strong by thanking God, but then it quickly derails. So his prayer is centered on himself. It's full of comparison. You know, he thanks God that he's not like those terrible people he knows, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. He thanks God for his moral superiority. And this is followed by the claiming. All he has done to honor God through his actions. You know, extra fasting, extra giving. He thanks God that he has done more than most to please God. His superiority demonstrated by his works. So he's exalting himself. You know, be proud of me, God. Look at all the great things I've done. So the Pharisee's problem is he thinks he's righteous. He thinks he's in that right standing before God because he looks around at others and sees how great he is doing in comparison. And so his big problem is what C.S. Lewis calls the great sin in his book, Mere Christianity, which is pride. So pride is self-exaltation, where you think more highly of yourself than you should. Pride is about an obsession with yourself. Um, It's to the detriment of those around you. It's that misplaced sense of self-worth. And we're all probably familiar with proud people. You know, you could probably picture someone you think of proud right now. Maybe it's the arrogant manager, that kid at school with the overinflated ego, um, that self-entitled customer who ruins your day. And God, through the personification of wisdom, says this in Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. And so God hates pride. He absolutely abhors it. And Why? Well, it's because pride is subtle and destructive. Pride leads to the breakdown of relationships. So when we see ourselves as better than others, it can lead to their mistreatment and malignance. It can be a gateway to all sorts of other sins. So when pride takes root in our hearts, when we turn inwards, we start to look down on others, as verse 9 says. We lose sight of the well-being of others because we're obsessed with the self. And this, then this can grow from self-centeredness into lots of the great ills of the world, harassment, abuse, misogyny, racism, genocide, so on. And so part of the reason it's such a great sin is that pride can take hold without people noticing, and it ultimately leads to destruction. And so the Pharisee thinks he's righteous because he is doing such a great job with his morals and actions. He believes that who he is in comparison to others is what will make God accept him. So his righteousness comes from the self and his actions. You know, I'm doing all these things. I'm not like those lesser people, so God must accept me. He must be so thrilled to have me on his side. And yet, he goes home condemned. So why does the tax collector go home justified? Well, let us read his prayer again. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So the tax collector is sneaking in the back, so no one can hear him, and he's a rock bottom. All he can do is beat his chest, a broken man in distress, and cry, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And so the tax collector knows who he is. You know, he knows he has nothing to put before God. He is robbed, he's done evil, he's taken rather than given. He's done everything that his society holds to be wrong, and he knows it. And so this is the man who sneaks into the back of church. Maybe he went as a kid, so Grandma took him along, fell in with the wrong crowd at school. You know, he gets caught up in a gang, ends up being a long lone shark, bullying, intimidating his way through life. He loses his friend outside the gang, family desert him, and one day he wakes up and realizes he has hit rock bottom. You know, this is where he wants it to be. And for some reason, that memory of going to church with Grandma all those years ago comes to mind, and he realizes he's been treating people horrendously. And despite never having chosen to do so before, he takes himself off to church, sneaks in, sits down at the back, a broken man. He doesn't know what more to do beyond crying out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it is this man, not the man at the front of church with everything going for him, that is justified. It's both the Pharisee and the tax collector. They grew up in Judaism. They would have known that mankind has a big problem, that after the fall in Genesis 3, Man's heart becomes wicked. And all of us know this, that we think and act in ways that are wrong. And the Bible calls us sin. You know, God created humankind to walk in that perfect relationship with him. But our sin separates us from God. So God is pure holiness. He is morally perfect. He's good. He's the source of all life. And this holiness is a bit like the sun. So that sun is the source of all life on earth. And it's good. But if we get too close, it will destroy you. And so God is holy and good. But since we are sinful, his presence is dangerous to us because it is so good. And we, as sinful creatures, we cannot approach the majesty of God due to our sin. We are unrighteous. And so God gives the law through Moses to be a guardian for the Israelites. But it was never supposed to be the solution. You know, the priests had to continually offer their sacrifices to God to cover over their sin. It did not prevent that, it did not have that permanent solution. And Moses knew this when the law was given. So we see in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, Moses tells the Israelites that they will fail to keep the law. The only solution to sin is for God to act and once and for all deal with the problem of the heart. And so we see Moses in Deuteronomy 30 says this, after telling the Israelites they're going to fail to keep the law, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And we also see this expressed in the prophets. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And so God promises that in the future, he will once and for all deal with the problem of the heart. And only when God deals with the heart can mankind become righteous and once again return to his presence. And so our best thoughts and words and deeds, they're never going to be enough to make us righteous. And so the Pharisee, yeah, he desired to be close to God. He was so desired that they religiously followed the law and went above and beyond to succeed. And as I've already said, you know, following the law, fasting, tithing, not doing evil, all of these are good things. But the Pharisee sees this as good enough. You know, his standard for getting right with God is the people around him. You know, he can see he's doing better um, than those around him. So he must be first in line to enter the throne room of God. You know, he's forgetting that all of us have sinned, have fallen short of glory God, that no matter the good that he's doing, he will need to keep going to the temple again and again and again to atone for his sins. Nothing he can do will make him righteous before God. And so the Pharisee is looking to himself for righteousness. He's exalting himself before God, disregarding the role of God uh, that God has to play in making him righteous, ignoring the work of God in his life, and that is prideful. You know, God hates pride because it is taking the glory that belongs to him and giving it to ourselves. so let's contrast that with the tax collector. He comes to God with nothing to give and throws himself on the mercy of God. He knows there is nothing he can do to be right with God, and so humbles himself before him, praying for God to be merciful towards him. Psalm 51 says, You do not delight in my sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So, even in the times of the Old Testament, God was not primarily looking for that checkbox ticking off the law, but a heart that was humble enough to acknowledge that nothing you could do could solve the problem of the heart. And from out of the place of humility will come a person who relies on God's mercy leading to an obedient following of God. And so what are we to take from this parable? You know, it can be easy to read this and think, well, I'm not like the Pharisee, you know, I'm a good Christian. I know that we're saved by grace alone, faith alone, not by my actions. I know that I need the grace of Jesus to be righteous. I don't judge other people like the Pharisee did. Thank you, God, that I come to you in humility and is not pride. God, I thank you that I am not like the Pharisee. And just like that, we've become the Pharisee. And so Jesus told these parables to challenge the hearers, and that includes us today. And so it can be really easy to fall into that pride and comparison without noticing it, because our culture is, satis- is saturated in justification by comparison. You know, I'm a teacher, and I have days when the bell goes at the end of the day, and I just sit down and think, oh, that was an absolute disaster, you know, and um, you know, just end up feeling really down. But then along comes a trainee teacher. First, first day on the job, you know, that mix of overconfidence and sheer terror being in front of teenagers, you know, no sense of pace in a lesson. They don't know how to deal with poor behavior or how to break down any kind of complicated physics to an appropriate level. And what they do is just have an absolute train wreck of a lesson. And then suddenly, I start to feel a lot better about myself because I see how <laughs> poor they are compared to me. Yeah, I've used comparison to get an idea of how I'm doing, you know. And it's not just limited to work. You know, how do you know how good you are on your sports team? How do you know how your child's doing in learning those important life skills? How do you know if you're hopelessly addicted to trashy Netflix shows? How do you know if you're succeeding in life? Well, what we do is we look around and compare ourselves to others. And you know, that's not always perfect, but it can be helpful, and it's something we do all the time. But when it comes to righteousness, how God sees us, Jesus goes against this entrenched wisdom of the world. This idea that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, it's extremely countercultural. You know, if you went on the streets and asked people who was righteous in this story, I suspect that most people would probably say, yeah, Pharisee, good works, not that evil, traitorous tax collector. You know, if you ask people what makes you righteous today, I think you get many different answers like, who did they vote for? What's their opinion on this topical conflict? You know, how are their kids doing in school? What flags are in their Twitter bio? You know, are there pronouns in their email signature? Are they boycotting this product because it's made by literal Nazis? You know, have they pulled the kids from school because they're it's full of indoctrination by the woke mob? You know, all these things, what are they doing to make them righteous? I know I'm righteous by looking at other people, putting myself on that mother to to hit the scale. I may not be the best, but I'm way better than all these other people. And that way of thinking is so common, but it is not the way of Christ. You know, this way of thinking, this comparison game, it's so easy to fall into. And I believe it's one of Satan's best snares to keep us away from that full relationship with God. You know, he takes the good things we strive to do. He turns it against us by getting us to look inwards. You know, I think we can see this in other religions that claim to be the path to God. You know, a lot of them have no assurance of salvation. And so holiness becomes this race to out-compete your fellow man and tick all the boxes, you know. I know I'm righteous because I pray this many times a day. I fasted for ages. I went on this pilgrimage. I give away all my money. I meditate for hours and hours of time to reach nirvana. I went on my mission to this poor country. I converted all those people, you know. I stand on the street corners with my flyers every weekend. Look how good I am doing Again, a lot of these things are good things that Christians, yes, should be doing as well. But the heart behind a lot of them, it shows that, you know, others are just trying to be as pious as they can be. It becomes about exalting the self above others. You know, there are some parts of the Islamic world where devoted Muslims will strive to develop a mark on their forehead called a zabiba, and it's to show others that they prostrated in prayer so much that their forehead has developed a callus on it from all the praying they're doing. It's all about, look how pious I am. And so this comparison game, it saturates humanity, especially when it comes to a person's righteousness. Um, But Jesus calls it out for what it is. It's a path that leads to condemnation and destruction. And nothing we can do can help us to get into that throne room of God. Being better than other people does not solve the problem of the heart that separates us from God's presence. You know, I know I've definitely done this in the past. You know, When I first arrived at university, it was quite easy to look around at other people my age who claimed to follow Jesus and notice how they were different to me. You know, oh, that guy over there, he was saying he got drunk at the weekend. You know, oh, she just used some slightly salty language. I would not use that, you know. And then suddenly you get this smug sense of superiority. And you you just like silent prayer times, like, thank you. I'm more holy than this guy over here. And then we hit that problem a comparison leading to an elevation of the self has happened. And now we've got to be nuanced here. You know, being concerned about the life of someone who claims to follow Christ, it's a good thing to do. You know, we should pray for all of us that we become more and more like Jesus. But ultimately, salvation is not the same as sanctification. All of us are becoming more and more like Christ by the work of the Spirit, day by day in our lives. That's what we call sanctification. And we're all at different stages. You know, the problem comes when we judge people's salvation status by their sanctification. You know, this tax collector was a terrible person who had done terrible things, and yet he was deemed righteous by throwing himself on the mercy of God. So in the church I went to when I was growing up, some members of the church were doing mission-style work with poor and homeless people in Halifax, and some of them became Christians, and they were encouraged to find a church, and some of them came to my church. Now, my church growing up was a very middle-class Anglican church, which was quite different um, from the working-class ex-homeless people that decided to visit. And so I know, to my shame, how, as a teenager, I know how I reacted when I saw them, you know? Oh, who are these slightly weird people that kind of smell? Some of them are missing teeth. Oh, I can barely read, you know? They're completely out of the depth here, I'm standing up, sitting down, liturgy of the Anglican Church, you know? They're quite rough in appearance, and, oh, well, these language choices are a bit interesting, you know? And I'm sure I wasn't the only one thinking about those behind the polite, you know, hmm, we smiles, you know? Judgment came because I looked at these people right at the start of their sanctification journey, compared them to myself, and then looked down on them, right? So how do we respond to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are different from different backgrounds, different social classes, different stages in their walk with God? And I think this comparison and elevation of the self can happen elsewhere as well. Is anyone doing Bible in the year this year? Yes, Yes. has anyone recently been shipwrecked in Exodus like me? No. Is anyone still on track? Yes, Yes, Andy. Round of applause. Yeah. But also, also, be careful, right? (laughs) If you're looking round at the people who have been shipwrecked like myself, and you're feeling slightly smug about progress, you're acting exactly like the Pharisee, yeah? Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) This comparison game. It can sneak into all places of our lives. You know, when we look at how our kids are doing compared to others, if we're comparing careers, prayer lives, how enthusiastic we are in some worship, commitment to church, giving money and time, basically every area of our life. You know, and it's good that we have concern for the spiritual health of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should all be aiming to be more and more like Christ every day with the help of the Spirit, as well as encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ to be more and more like Jesus. But if we look at those around us, and use that as the benchmark to our godliness, then we are acting like the Pharisee. And so no matter where we are on our journey of sanctification, we are ultimately those who sin. We're unable to, by ourselves, enter that pure intensity of God's holy presence. And we need to be throwing ourselves on the mercy of God just like the tax collector did. Now, unlike the Pharisee and the tax collector, we live this side of the cross, and so we know that through the death of Jesus, our sin is once and for all time dealt with. By going to the cross, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect sinless Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God against sin, purchasing our redemption, clothing us in righteousness, so now we can boldly approach that throne of God, free from condemnation and shame. Now, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when we compare ourselves with others and use that as a measure of our righteousness, we disregard Jesus' saving action on the cross. And yes, sanctification is an important part of a Christian's walk with God, and we should all aim to please God through our thoughts, words, deeds, but this is not how we become righteous before him. You know, our worthiness, our value, our identity... Um, they come through the faith in the death of Christ alone, and God sees us in the light of Christ. You know, Our godliness and good works, they do not make us righteous. Our godliness and good works should flow out of our love for God and our trust in him and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. And as I was making it, preparing this, I also think that um, maybe some of us here are also what I'd call proto-text collectors. You know, what I mean is that you know that you're not where you want to be, in your walk with Christ. You know, especially when you look around at those who seemingly have their lives more put together than you, just like the tax collector would have done, Um, and you're scared God will not accept you because we've got what you've done, so you're not coming to God, you're kind of avoiding him. Um, But just like the Pharisee's actions don't bring him righteousness, like the tax collector, your actions are not going to count you out of righteousness. Your righteousness comes when you trust in God and his mercy. Now, as Romans 3 says, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so we are exalted when we humble ourselves before him, trusting that his sacrifice for us clothes us in his righteousness our current godliness or present ungodliness, it doesn't alter our standing before God. So you may have noticed this series is supposed to be about prayer, and I've basically not really mentioned it. Sorry, Andy, for not sticking to the plan. (laughs) So I guess I should probably mention at least one application point to do with prayer. And so there's this. God values humility in prayer. You know, we should be coming to God in prayer, asking for him to move, but not demanding it due to all of our great actions. That would be like the Pharisee. We need to humbly ask him to move, acknowledging and confessing our sin before him, relying on his mercy to deal with our sin, then boldly requesting him to see a move, trusting that our identity is secure and rooted in Christ, trusting that God is our good and gracious Father who gives good gifts to his children, all coming out of that place of praise for who he is and what he has done for us also this acknowledging of our need before God, it helps us see the value of others, not looking down on them, it helps us to pray rightly for them. And it also helps us to rightly acknowledge our sin and our need for forgiveness, and then this channels itself into rejoicing and thanksgiving. And so humility in prayer helps us to have the right perspective on who we are, who God is, and that is the foundation to a flourishing prayer life. And so if we're honest, We've all at times acted like the Pharisee. You know, we've all looked down on others. We've all been prideful and have trusted in our actions to bring us righteousness. But the only way to bring us from that way of the Pharisee to the way of, to the tax collector is to radically encounter again the grace of God. So as an example, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, he looked like an amazing Christian on the outside. You know, while he was a postgraduate at Oxford, he was part of something called the Holy Club a group that strived to live a devout Christian life. You know, he's the son of a clergyman. He was a clergyman himself. He did ministries in prisons, sweatshops, slums. He gave away food, clothing, education to the children of the slums. He observed Saturday and Sunday as the Sabbath. You know, he fasted and prayed and went to church. He did all the right things. And yet, after doing all this, it was only later in life that he said he was converted to Christianity. It was only when God grabbed his proud heart and humbled him, when he understood that righteousness did not come from his own works, but was the free gift of grace through the death of Christ, that is when his heart was transformed. Especially now as we come to the end, as we come to that time of worship, as we take the bread and the cup together, um, let us once again reflect upon the gift of the cross. Let us ask the Spirit to grab Our proud hearts point out those areas of pride in our lives where we act like the Pharisee. Let us throw ourselves on the mercy of God, seek his forgiveness just like the tax collector did. Let us ask the Spirit to empower us to live our lives with Christ. Knowing our righteousness. Thanks for listening. Christ Church Manchester is one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media. And you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode from our very own musicians. You can also discover our current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us, or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting with you.